Hello, and welcome to the Engineering Your Farm podcast. This podcast is produced by the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Field Agricultural Engineering Team. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Brian Doherty, Field Agricultural Engineer with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation with our guest today. I think you'll find this to be a very interesting and thought-provoking conversation about an innovative and rather unconventional approach to raising livestock on the farm. Today, we're going to be discussing the theory behind and the design of the stock cropper system. Our guest farms in Winnebago County in north central Iowa, and he's part of a small group of farmers that originally came up with the idea for the stock cropper, and he's working to improve both the design and the management of the system. Our guest is Zach Smith. So, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. So before we get into the details on the stock cropper, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your farm so we have some context for the discussion? Yep. So uh, I am a 42-year-old farmer uh, that was born and raised here in Winnebago County. Um, grew up in a small corn soybean operation, had the fair to finish hogs until uh, I was about in middle school. Uh, but got in on that fun. Um, knew I was interested in farming, went to uh, Iowa State for agronomy, um, graduated in 02, and I came out and worked um, basically in ag retail roles uh, until 2015, um, along with taking over my, my dad's farm in 2014. Uh, and then from 2015 on now, I'm a pioneer um, dealer and a granular services agent and a crop protection dealer. And so I kind of have my own uh, independent ag retail business centered around Pioneer that I farm uh, on the side. Um, I have a lot of people's story where you've got to have a day job to uh, to justify uh, farming. And so I, I have about 300 acres and uh, the operation is uh, kind of rooted in, uh, I guess, what some people would consider more innovative practices. So uh, around uh, strip till and uh, cover crops and conservation stuff has been pretty important to uh, the farm uh, for me over the last uh, seven or eight years. That's, um, I guess, a little a, a quick synopsis of, of the background of, you know, about my operation and kind of what I do. How did you initially come up with the idea for the stock cropper? Yeah, so the idea uh, came about uh, just uh, about 18 short months ago uh, when corn wasn't, you know, $6. It was like two seventy a bushel. And myself, along with a couple uh, other good friends, um, we're trying to, we're also smaller producers trying to figure out how we were going to stay in business at those levels you know, rather than just trying to scale up. And we'd been playing around uh, with the idea of strip intercropping or relay cropping, trying to find ways to just with unique uh, arrangements, come up with a way to generate more revenue. And um, it was that through that thought process through the winter of 2020 that uh, myself, along with uh, my good friend, Sheldon Stevemer, who's also an ISU grad, farmer and egg engineer, and then another gentleman up in central Minnesota named Lance Peterson. Uh, we were going back and forth, kind of brainstorming, and Lance had the idea of, instead of with strip intercropping, instead of having a crop in between, what if you put livestock? And the reaction was, well, how, how in the hell are you going to do that? Uh, that sounds kind of tough. And what we came up with was, well, we've got to invent the world's first mobile multi-species uh, animal barn grazing unit. And uh, and that's, we kind of started off with just the wild idea. Um, and the idea was, is that we could make something that was um, 
well, you know, had a lot of different biodiversity, which, you know, is lacking from our landscape. And it would address a lot of the concerns around soil health and uptake. You'd have a continuous living root growing in these strips where the animals would be. And it would be set up as a perfect rotation where the animals' strips could be rotated with the cash crop in between every other year, minimize inputs. And the real value idea was having the ability to market, you know, have stacked enterprises uh, of multiple different species of livestock that you could market at a premium rather than just like if they got uh, shot out of a CAFO where it'd be, you know, a pasture raised uh, type animal and, and uh, go after the, the market from that. And so that's kind of, um, you know, out of necessity, the thing was born. It doesn't look that way as much now with corn at $6, but even with corn at $6, uh, the economics on uh, the stacked enterprises that we have um, still beat $6 corn. A lot of people wouldn't think that in this environment, but that's, uh, that's kind of how it has shaken out. Let's get into the details a little more on the stock cropper itself. Can you just kind of describe for the audience what this thing looks like and a bit more about how it actually works in the field? Right. So what we did or what we did last year and we have again set up this year is we basically just took a cornfield and we cut in um, 20 foot wide pasture strips every other 20 feet. So 20 foot of corn, 20 foot of, uh, of pasture. And uh, we seeded the pasture uh, in early spring. Um, it was, I think that five or six different species in it. And then what we did was uh, to put animals across it, we built and engineered uh, a mobile barn. So imagine a barn on wheels um, that was steerable and had a grazing pens out the front and the back and, and then a, a barn with a roof over the top of it so the animals could have shelter. The barn itself was split in two. So 10 foot on one side was for pigs and the other side was for uh, sheep and goats. And so the sheep and goats were our ruminants. They went out front and they hit the pasture first in their grazing pen. And then uh, the pigs followed behind. And then behind that, we had two chicken tractors uh, that we had dragged behind and everything was there for a specific reason. So are in place and time. So the sheep were kind of our lawnmowers, our pigs were our soil disturbers. And then the chickens came behind and kind of finished things off by scratching stuff out and kind of evening out the manure profile. And basically what we did is we went out and we moved the barn twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. And we just kind of moved through that strip over time. And uh, that's essentially uh, what it looked like last year. And again, what we're kind of working on this year too for the system. I've kind of been following along on your YouTube stock cropper channel over time, and you've had a few different kind of iterations or versions of this mobile unit over time. So you had one called the cluster cluck that you're working on. So how does that differ from your earlier designs? Yeah, so we had to come up with a name for what we were coming up, you know, building. And I, I thought cluster cluck was an appropriate uh, thing because we had so much going on in one space at the same time. So We've kind of called all these prototypes uh, cluster clucks, and then we put attached different names. So the first one we called it cluster cluck five thousand. That one was the the twenty the twenty foot version barn. Uh, this year we've got an iteration where we wanted to include cattle, and we wanted to do a wider uh, row spread spacing with like out to thirty feet. Um, and so that's a really big barn that we just deployed in the field here about ten days ago. And that has uh, uh, two calves uh, grazing in front, followed by 10 pigs um, coming in behind. We call that one the Cluster Cluck Max. So for people that have seen that on Twitter or on the YouTube channel, that's the big red one. And then we're in the process right now. We're actually finishing up as we record this podcast, the smaller version, uh, which is going to be, 
I think somewhere between a uh, eight to 10 foot working width when it shakes out. And then we're going to call that one uh, the cluster cluck nano. And that one is intended to have smaller ruminants up front, sheep and goats, and then uh, uh, likely chickens or maybe some pigs uh, behind on that one. But that is the one that we're partnered with Dawn Equipment and their company, Underground Agriculture. Uh, we formed a partnership this spring uh, where they are going to be the engineering and development arm of uh, my company, the Stockropper, and help us produce barns to be marketed, hopefully in uh, starting in 2022. So we've really, we've made kind of a anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 foot wide barns, with different animal species. We're just trying to figure out the configurations of what's possible and what's not possible. And from those efforts, learn on how can we make something that's commercially viable for people to use to do this kind of intelligent, autonomous, mobile uh, grazing system that we kind of had envisioned over the last 18 months now. So, and I, I should say that the smaller version we are going to debut uh, here this weekend at a field day. Not sure when this is going to air, but uh, uh, July 17th in Muncie, Indiana, uh, we're going to debut uh, the new barn with all of the kind of autonomous features, uh, solar powered uh, rainfall collection, electric wheel drive motors, guidance. Um, the thing's actually going to be uh, controlled using an Xbox controller. Uh, to to drive the thing. So it's got a lot of cool features that uh, Joe Bassett and his team at Dawn have been working on over the last couple months. And, uh, you know, it's really going to be that true autonomous barn, I think, in the future is what we're going to, you know, go to market with. And they've done a great job of kind of getting the proof of concept of all those crazy things here. Hopefully be showing folks in the next week what that looks like. Excellent. Sounds like a very interesting project. So I know it's early days on the experimentation you've been doing, but do you have any just kind of data or general observations on you know, what kind of animal performance you're getting with this or, you know, crop performance, you know, are the crops following these strips, you know, the, the next year, are they about the same or are they looking better? What have you seen so far? Yeah. So if for those like familiar with intercropping, intercropping is a great way to, you know, increase light interception on the outside rows or the edge effect. And you can get a really, really nice bump on corn yield off of doing that. That's just kind of the, one of the natural benefits of doing this. So like last year, we had the corn on corn um, in our area uh, was, you know, probably average in the low, you know, 200, 215 bushel an acre range. And even within a lot of drought pressure last year with our system, with the corn on corn in between our animal strips, we had 262 bushel corn. And a lot of that extra, you know, 50 bushels of yield was coming from that edge effect and increasing populations and getting more light interception on that uh, that outside row. So it's the system lends itself very well for, you know, high level row crop production in between, you know, where the barns are. Uh, and now this year, going back to looking where we had the barns last year and seeing how the corn looks, there is a substantial difference where the animals traveled versus uh, where we had corn on corn again uh, this year. Uh, we had, we did the same fertilizer drive and nitrogen program across, but the difference was just, I think, the, the biology and the extra manure that we had on those strips. But that corn this year is about two foot taller and closer to tassel already and dark green. On the other stuff uh, just doesn't look quite as good. So I'm really encouraged. You know, a lot of that stuff's anecdotal uh, for the most part, but uh, I'm really encouraged with, you know, just some of the natural uh, advantages this system with arranging plants in a little bit different configuration than just regular 30 inch spacing across the field and bring to the table. You know, the corn cools off better. 
it's kind of, you know, the, the strips, the uh, pasture strips are kind of like radiator fins. So in a hot, dry summer at night, you know, that's kind of the concern for corn production. You know, we've got all these fins going through the field of, with cool air pulling to help cool the canopy off and maintain a high level of production of corn. You know, and then the benefit is we just, it's kind of a perfect rotation next year. We just flop it and we've got a, you know, we kind of, we did some rough calculations on the manure values that we were using and, you know, we're right at about what removal is, what the stocking rates we have for what we're laying out there for manure as it goes across the field. And the great thing from an environmental standpoint is that the manure, you know, that's there, we're not applying it in the end of October when we don't have any living roots like in a cornfield. Uh, we've that manure is getting taken up right away with uh, the pasture as it recovers um, after we pass over it and is held and, and stabilized there until it can be used the next year when we uh, come back and plant corn in that same strip again. Just kind of want to shift gears a little bit here. You know, we were just uh, discussing earlier as a recording here, we just had a nice rain shower, but it has been quite dry up in your area. So how have those dry conditions you know, affected your operating plans for this year? Yeah, the dry weather is really, well, it's been a challenge, uh, you know, since last year at this time, you know, we, we had rain in June uh, when we started the project and then it shut off and it rained much the rest of the summer. And the biggest challenge that's posed so far has been the establishment and speed of our pasture and then the regrowth of it afterwards. You know, in northern Iowa, we usually don't have trouble getting rain in June and July, but it's really been a bear cat this year. And, uh, you know, that on top of the frost damage that we had, it kind of it kind of followed some of our plans up early, but we caught that rain now. And, you know, the, the key with this system, like with having, you have to have your pasture kind of time to be ready when the barn is going to come across. So the way we have it set out, we have a 750 foot run that is our first run, which will take us about 30 to 40 days to get across. And then we'll turn and we had to have, you know, pasture that would be ready 30, 40 days later. And so we have to kind of vary our seeding dates and if we don't get rain to get the seed going, it really uh, fouls things up. Thankfully, uh, the next pasture run I just seeded about 10 days ago, and we've caught two rains on it now, and it actually is already up. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, that we continue to keep that fed here. Um, and so that continues to develop so that we can make sure that we've got forage for the animals to, uh, to go in. So you, you know, you got to kind of think we need like a June pasture run in July and August and September and October. Um, and you've got to have it managed so that you're constantly going into good cover. And uh, the weather has definitely been challenging with that. But uh, I think it was, it's worked relatively well, even in the drought. Um, but in a more normal precip year, you know, where we normally get 35 inches of rain, if we can get that, I think this is going to work really well. So related to this project, uh, you've also been quite active on social media with this. So on YouTube in particular, it seems to be quite popular. You've got almost 1,200 subscribers uh, to the Stock Cropper YouTube channel. So I, I know from personal experience, it's a lot of work putting those videos together. So what's your motivation for taking the time to do that? Um, you know, I knew when we came up with this idea, if it was going to go anywhere, we needed to, to get it out and share it with people. And we needed to have a venue like, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are okay, but, you know, we needed to have a, a way to kind of communicate the what, the how, and the why. And that's where the YouTube you know, channel came through to kind of, kind of do that. And uh, it, you're right, it is work, you know, but once you kind of uh, start to understand the pattern of you know, how, to, how to create content and uh, uh, I just use iMovie like most people do, I think, to, to do the editing and the uploading, it makes it pretty simple to, to do that. But 
I think when you're doing weird stuff like this, you kind of feel like you're on an island. And I've really enjoyed uh, other folks uh, that have been willing to share some of this kind of crazy or, you know, on the edge uh, farming ideas. Guys like Jason Mock out in Indiana, where we're heading this weekend, his big field day, that have kind of put themselves out there and be willing to share the good and the bad because um, it's not all good. You know, there, there's always failures and things you learn. But that's kind of what I wanted to, you know, share our experience. And if, you know, for better or worse, because last year we didn't know how it was going to work. We were going to have a disaster and it's just kind of a leap of faith. But I'm glad that we're doing it. And we've met, we've got people following us all over the country and we've got some international followers. And it's really helped uh, the networking and other people that have brought in good ideas uh, to it. And it's a really efficient way to communicate what we're doing to a lot, a lot of folks rather than just, you know, having a sign on the highway saying this is stock cropping. Um, we can get a lot better better reach with the social media stuff. So I probably spend, uh, I, I do it pretty quick, you know, an hour, an hour and a half a week on content creation and, and editing and getting it, getting it out. I, I just, I can't afford much more time than that. So I've, I don't have a super high production value in my videos, but um, uh, you know, I don't know that for what we're doing that we necessarily have to. You know, in this current environment, you know, most farms are very highly specialized. This is a pretty unique approach for bringing some diversity back to the farm. So what are your just kind of general thoughts on the importance of diversifying farm operations? And do you see the stock cropper as being part of the larger regenerative agriculture movement? Uh, I guess if I had to label it with something, I would say uh, yes. I think stock cropping, if we can figure these things out, has the potential to be a scalable option to bring back diversity and grow food in a more, dare I say, sustainable way than what we do currently with just the row crop production, highly specialized livestock production. You know, the thing that I think about a lot, you know, I'm going to turn 42 here and I'm going through, I don't know if you want to call it a midlife crisis or stream of consciousness about like the business that we're in, but it just, you know, the thing that has really hit me is we keep wanting to get bigger and bigger. And when we do that, we get, you know, you have to get more specialized and uh, we have fewer people involved and our communities are seeing that our schools are seeing that. And when was the last time we had it? Well, we had it back when you know farms weren't so big and farms didn't look like this. They were more complicated. They were complex and they had biodiversity on them. And we've kind of replaced biodiversity and using animals and, and uh, animals with crops together on farms. And we've substituted each other out and just replaced with technology. And I would argue that, you know, while a lot of the, the scaling abilities of agriculture are impressive to see, uh, the results are just fewer and fewer people being involved. And we've got lots of environmental concerns, water quality and soil, and all those things that we're really not addressing as we scale things up. And so, you know, as kind of a student of, of the soil health uh, side of things, I know that, you know, livestock and biodiversity of animals and plants is really important if you're really serious about soil health. And so that's one of the things where we were really interested with this is we thought this could be a solution to, uh, you know, because this is something that's labor intense. It's, it's not something you're going to do on 10,000 acres. Uh, but that was kind of the point. If we could create a system where people could make a living on, say, 160 acres, again, like they used to, which in our models, if somebody wanted to stock crop on 160 acres uh, and they could market the meats appropriately, they could make a living off of that. And what would that mean to the communities that would need the processing, you know, the butcher shops, and the, uh, all the other supporting businesses that we used to have when agriculture was a lot more diverse in our local neighborhoods for all the other supporting businesses in town? 
And maybe that's uh, idealistic or too utopian for some folks to stomach or believe in. But to me, um, I don't want to just keep doing things the same way because I see the path that that's on. And I think when we have things more complex, it, it leaves more value on the table for the people that are doing the work. And that's, I think, what's necessary in order for people to come back and repopulate, you know, these areas and, and keep, you know, rural Iowa and all, all sorts of rural areas, uh, you know, going and great and a, a place that people want to live and have services available and, um, you know, and community and good people around. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate your thoughts on that. And you kind of touched on the marketing and I that was actually going to be my next question. You know, where are you marketing the animals that you're raising now? Do you think there's capacity to kind of expand that in your local area there? Or do you think that's going to become an increasing challenge? I can see that as being, a, you know, if a farmer's interested in this, they might say, well, sounds like a great idea in theory, but, you know, what am I going to do with these animals, you know, if I don't have any local processing or other challenges like that? So how are you handling that? Yeah, so it's, it is it is the biggest hurdle, and I'm not going to run from that challenge at all because um, it is it is real and it's the biggest thing that's going to keep this uh, thing from scaling. There's a ton of interest, however, right now in, in bringing small processors back. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Vilsack just announced, I think, $500 million in funding last Friday. Uh, there was, a, I believe, a law passed here uh, through the Iowa legislature this last session uh, with the same thing with uh, funding and, and programs for uh, local uh, processing plants and butchers. So, like, you know, is that going to open the floodgates to this? No, but it's a good start. And it's a, it's a place we weren't at, you know, especially pre-pandemic. And I think... You know, consumers uh, are going to be the ones that really drive this. If consumers uh, want to buy in on these farming practices and animals produced this way, uh, that hopefully, you know, that demand uh, will come. And there's more people, more investment type folks that I've been able to network in that are more interested in this space with stepping up and trying to find ways to form more regional and smaller processors to give that avenue so that you have a way to market. One of the ideas that we've had with this thing, if it, if it was to start to go out on scale, that we could perhaps build a stock cropper meats brand where uh, similar to for folks that are familiar with like a Nyman ranch where they had a set of qualities and standards on production practices. So that the product would be consistent, you know, that we could form some sort of cooperative group. Uh, so farmers weren't alone trying to figure out how am I going to you know direct market, you know, 300 head of hogs, uh, you know, every fall where we could pool efforts and, and have a way to communicate to consumers the story um, and branch out that production. But the marketing piece is a real deal. Like how I've been doing it has just been through, you know, friends, family, fans of what we're doing, uh, you know, from like the, the social media stuff. And, you know, the people that, have, that, that get our stuff, they absolutely love the meat. It's, you know, completely different than what, uh, what they're used to uh, buying in the grocery store. And, you know, for a lot of it, I think, it's just increased for opening people's eyes to that experience and what the difference is when you raise animals on the ground and have them interact with soil rather than on concrete. And uh, there is a difference. And, uh, and I've raised animals both ways and I know which way I want to feed my family. And that's, you know, animals on dirt. Right. So just kind of looking ahead a little bit, what's more of your long-term vision for the stock cropper? Are you uh, kind of gearing up to start manufacturing and selling units or where are you at on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think right now uh, that is the intention. You know, that's why I signed or uh, you know signed up with uh, with Joe Bassett and Don Equipment is I need a man manufacturing and design partner to come up with the different iterations to kind of find the right you know product market fit. 
um, so that we can come out and find something that can work for farmers or other groups too. And I think honestly, our initial target market might be on this until we can get over some of these marketing hurdles on the actual scaled production side is, you know, making these mobile autonomous barns available to, you know, folks that, uh, you know, maybe don't live in the city, but have an acreage and they maybe they own five or 10 acres and they want to raise uh, some chickens and some pigs, and they but they still want to be able to go to the lake on the weekend. And so they had an autonomous barn that can move itself around and uh, have enough water and feed on board uh, for a couple of days at a time. It allows folks like that that are interested in growing their own food uh, around you know, urban areas to uh, to get more involved in agriculture. Uh, and then the other thing is the design of this thing is really set up to go between fixed spaces. And so we're heavily uh, eyeing like uh, wine country and uh, grapevines and hops and anything where, you know, you have uh, kind of a, a permanent crop with uh, an alleyway in between that needs to be managed vegetatively and think about, you know, how could we freight animals through there and lay down manure and help manage vegetation, but it still feed the, uh, you know, the tree or fruit nut uh, vine type crops uh, in between. I, I just think there's a lot of applications where with the technology that we've developed could fit in with kind of intertwining livestock with uh, all sorts of different types of crops. And so we're, we're going to keep learning this summer with the different iterations of designs we've had, and we're going to adapt them. And uh, our hope is, is that we will have uh, um, some form of a commercial product available here uh, going into uh, the 2022 season. Thanks so much, Zach, for uh, taking the time to be here today. Really uh, interesting project you're working on and really appreciate you sharing your insights and how farmers can try and integrate more livestock uh, back into their existing farms. If you'd like to learn more about the Stock Cropper, be sure to check out the StockCropper.com website and you can follow along with what's happening in the field on the Stock Cropper YouTube and Facebook pages. Uh, if you like what you've heard on the podcast here today, please subscribe and drop us a line at engineeryourfarm at gmail.com if you have any comments or suggestions. You've been listening to the Engineering Your Farm podcast. <laughs>